It's our first episode back for 2020, coming up on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, Cricket World Cup League 2, Ireland in the West Indies, Scotland enter the ECL, and much, much more. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and with me are the usual suspects to get the ball rolling for 2020. First, the man known by many as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. First of all, Happy New Year. How have you spent the first half of January 2020? <laughs> Cleaning up the house from all the uh, all the stuff that's built up over the previous year and trying to find room for all the Christmas presents. Uh, it's been a pretty tedious start to the year, actually. What Christmas presents have you, uh, have you got that you need to find room for? Like, Did you get a really extra large teddy bear or something? <laughs> you would. <laughs> well, a lot of books and... Uh, yeah, the bookshelf was already groaning under the weight of uh, too many, so we've had to had to sort that out and um, various other things around the house. Just uh, taking the opportunity to get rid of some some surplus things that are just taking up space and very small house. So you know, you've got to be uh, wise with with what you keep. I'm glad you bring up books because I have a backlog of books as well from Christmas. But one book that is still in transit on the way is. Peter Delapena's book, which I will be getting around to hopefully yes. as soon as it comes in. Looking forward Ships to Ships to that. Australia now? Yes. So, very, very keen. Uh, also joining us tonight, of course, one of the perennial figures of the emerging game, uh, our favourite left-arm orthodox spinner, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? Well, that's that's quite the introduction. I'm I'm well. I'm enjoying reading Peter Delapena's book. Finally finished Steve Smith's Men by Jeff Lemon. So I had that in the uh, well, on the shelf for, for probably too long. But uh, New Year's resolutions for the first time ever, and, and one of them is about reading a lot more. So I'm getting through it. So I'm in, uh, I'm deep in uh, in the mind of Peter Delapena at the moment. But um, yeah, the first half of January for me has pretty much been dictated by cricket, cricket and more cricket, which would be a, a huge surprise for a lot of people. Super Coach BBL is addictive and mm. I, yeah, I just recommend people stay away from it. Um, but no, no, otherwise, no, no. otherwise I'm, I'm good. I'm getting active, getting outside, bit of vitamin D, trying to be a lesser version or I should say a lesser shape or weight of Cutler. Rolling the arm over, Tim? No, not bowling yet, Nicholas. I think I'll wait till um, I'm still another 40% lighter before I get back into that. But um, <laughs> I, I did roll the arm over for the first time on Christmas Day um, because Mel asked me to teach her how to bowl. This is how far along we are in her cricket development. Oh, um, you know, year and a half of relationship, and I've got her staying up past her normal bedtime at 10 p.m. during the ashes saying, I'm not going to go to bed until Steve Smith has got a has got 150 and this is at 130 and I'm just like that that's <laughs> this a win. is a critical rite of passage by oh, the way no. for anyone out there hashtag relationship goals yeah well that that was during the ashes so I've, I've waited this long it's just been stewing for that long and then I want oh can you teach me how to bolt him on Christmas day so that's pretty much it I, I, that's um that's Everest really isn't it in terms of relationship goals but um <laughs> I think throwdowns I think throwdowns is is the pinnacle there <laughs> and all all day you know just for hours 
hours and not questioning it. I think the moment when we have our, our partners on the podcast, that'll be squad goals. I think, you know, the, the um, um, what, what would we say with the, the emerging cricket um, wags? Yeah. That was a, a very long answer, Bez. And I'm sure everyone's really like, interested to hear about it. I've my got life, a lot of responses. Uh, well, I'm interested to hear about it. <laughs> well, if no, you're it's good. Yeah, well, uh, let's hope we're, that, we're coming. Uh, we're coming back from a break. Yeah, we are. So it's a good start to the year. How are you, Daniel? I hear that you've just laid out probably a, a cricket trip or two on a new engine for your car, yes. which is not good. You've been flying uh, around Australia working on Big Bash. You've not been name-checked as many times as a certain other stats man for Fox, but you were there to watch <laughs> Stoinis' record-breaking knock. How are you, sir? Those seven overs felt like they went for five minutes. That was ridiculously brutal to the point where I was sweating at the end of the innings and the boys have just come out of the sort of booth that they're in. They've turned to me and I've looked whiter than Casper the friendly ghost and they said, gee, we've kept you on your toes there. Howie gave me a pat on the back, which was good. But yeah, very, very busy and yeah, just dropped 4000 dollars into an engine for the car and it probably relinquished the trip to Nepal I was planning on taking. Yeah, that did take a big chunk out of my very miserly savings account. I've also got some more exciting news, boys. Uh, there was a Christmas present that came in from uh, Mel, my partner Mel, and I'm I'm wearing it. We actually collected five emerging cricket polo shirts uh, yes. in grey and red. Now, uh, they look okay. Mel said she's keeping one, which is great. She's our first official merchandised fan, which is good to see. But yeah, they've all come in. Uh, we'll get them out to you guys soon. And hopefully, I mean, if things go well, we might be able to sell some to the general public. But I'm thinking that's probably a little bit further down the line. Let's get cracking with the recently concluded Cricket World Cup League 2 leg in Oman. And it was was cut short due to, well, some unique circumstances. I don't think I've seen this in the cricketing world happen before. I have seen this in Thailand with, with football, but it's new to me in cricket. The death of Sultan Qaboos bin Saeed Al Saeed actually interrupted the tournament and the last two games were abandoned without a ball bowled. There was a three-day mourning period in Oman, which meant that the roads were closed and, and none of the teams were actually able to get out to Al Amarat. Uh, we're not exactly sure how those points will be divvied up. At this point, we just assume that they're going to be no results and the points will be shared. Uh, we'll pass on some news about that uh, a little bit later when we do get that news. It was an interesting series for me and Tim, I'll start with you and, and we weren't really able to catch much of this uh, live, of course, due to a lack of stream. But it just looks like the Namibians are having a little bit of a hangover in 2020 after that stellar 2019. They were bowled out in the 90s in, in one of those games. And as for UAE, given the situation that they were thrown into late last year, they've come out and, and performed really well uh, in Oman. Well, yeah, UAE finished the year really well. Don't forget them with them beating Scotland in the ODI just before Christmas. And this young squad that Dougie Brown has, three of them are now in South Africa with the, the World Cup squad there. And it just seems, reading about it, that Paul Radley being in Oman was basically our only connection to the series. And as you mentioned, no streaming, which was a quizzical decision considering that Oman streamed all of the matches of the pentangular T20 before the the T20 World Cup qualifiers but then they don't have the money in the budget uh, well according to their streaming provider anyway that weren't engaged didn't have it in the budget to to stream these games seems 
I don't know, a bit weird. Like we, we know that the figures around Omani Cricket are very well off, but it would strange that they would not go as far to be broadcasting the country's one-day internationals on, on home turf. So that made it very hard, as you said. Reading Radder's reports, uh, yeah, UAE, reading about it, it just seems they the right sort of attitude around having Ahmed Raza as skipper, um, a real respect of amongst equals within the team with a very flat hierarchy, which seems very different to how it has been. Seem to be getting the best out of these players that we we knew were talented coming through, but have really been thrust into the limelight. Yeah, Namibia hangover. Uh, is it them touring? I don't I don't think it's necessarily them touring because they did rather well on their tour to the USA. So yeah, that they had to lean on some experience there with Craig Williams coming with the goods with his hundred um, in their score of three hundred and forty or whatever it was. But yeah, and then Oman themselves as well. I think we had expected them to carry on their form, but they've had their little blip again as well. Yeah, I think Namibia's. I mean, their batting lineup is is explosive as we know, but it, it is a bit. Um, it it can be hit or miss. So they can put on three forty odd, or they can be bowled out for ninety. And it's partly the way they bat with a lot of the guys who do go really hard from the first ball. And I mean that will happen sometimes but they have a lot of you know, really reliable and, and solid batsmen too like Erasmus and, and Williams who scored Namibia's first ODI century so I, I'm not sure what it is. Um, very good bowling of course from Ahmed Raza who yeah as you say as, as the captain bringing this team together after the, the fixing scandal he's rebuilt the side around himself uh, very effectively and shaping up as one of the better captains in associate cricket at the moment I think just with his, his leadership skills and there you go Bez another bowler who can captain. Yeah, the exceptions to the rule. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I love being proved wrong with this. Uh, looking to Namibia, I, I do want to sort of focus on them a little bit because, to be honest, when I saw the squad being picked for the team, it was a little bit strange. You know, they've, they've got Nico Davin for the T20s, and we understand why that is. And they look in this one-day series like they are probably a batsman short. They had Freilink batting, Jan Freilink batting at seven, who, who probably is capable of, of batting at seven as a bowling all-rounder, but I just think there's a little bit... Bit more balance there with him batting at eight. I'm not really sure what the circumstances are. Christy Villian wasn't selected. We're not sure if that's an availability thing or something else. But someone who has dropped seemingly out of plans in Namibia is John Bredenkamp. He had made a couple of good knocks in Cricket World Cup League 2 in Namibia and he hasn't really played since but I think he's the number three that they probably should go for. I mean they've opened up with Zane Green a couple of times in this series and batted Kotzer at three. Kotzer has scored runs. We saw that 100 last Last year, of course, uh, against Hong Kong, opening the batting in in cricket world. World Cricket League too, getting all my new competitions mixed up. But yeah, it was a little bit strange. Uh, so they're still trying to find that balance. Uh, and given that this is a big year in, in T20 cricket for Namibia, that might be the focus. But with a huge opportunity on the line at Cricket World Cup League too, it would be worth perhaps considering Brennan Camp if he is available for selection. But uh, UAE, uh, fantastic to again come along. And Tim, yeah, you make a good point. They finished off last year really well in terms of playing uh, without so many of those players who found themselves in, in hot water. And it just goes to show maybe how much of an underperformance there was going on with those players that were in the team that were, were doing those sinister things at the time and in the team so hopefully yeah for, for UAE's perspective they can they can keep on pushing along Oman I think we haven't really talked about them at home here but yeah it was one of those tournaments where the, the key stories were the two teams that toured rather than the, the team that hosted 
Yeah, it's a funny one. They only did play two games out of this truncated, I guess you could call it, series. But it just goes to show how quickly these series can fall out of the mind's eye, really, if they're not streamed. You know, we're so used to seeing cricket out of Amman streams and a bit more noise about it. But I don't think I saw a match report come out of the ICC either. I think that's why as well. Nobody was talking about it. The ICC wasn't and there was no stream. So I think it's very easy for these things to just drop off the radar. And I guess if we're sitting here sort of scratching our head sort of wondering about the the storylines from this series chances are there are a lot of people similarly so it just shows how important it is to have these games and series and leagues front and center i remember there were two of those games going on and there were no other international games going whatsoever and you think well if the, the icc had an ott platform or was streaming these matches through their their own social media channels just how much exposure they'd get and what the emerging game is screaming out for but the fact that we're here scratching our heads about the storylines i think says enough doesn't it well and it's not just about getting the results out it's about i want to watch some good cricket that match with namibia oman made a really good fist of it the lower order for oman looked like they might be able to do something special before uh, jj smith came back and really sealed the deal for namibia like that was an exciting game of cricket i would have loved to have watched it but yeah it's it's bizarre and it reminds me bertus de has um, done some interesting research on the ICC's Twitter account since I think it was about October and roughly 80% of all their tweets are bilateral full member matches and very, very small number of the tweets are actually about um, ICC tournaments, the pathway tournaments that, that these games are part of and I mean, I've spoken about this before and it's a recurring theme but the ICC's product is international cricket and why are they not trying to promote their product? It's it's baffling. Well, yeah, to finalise this topic, you know, it's not as if the Sultanate is struggling for cash and and we've seen many other national boards provide more than adequate streaming services for a fraction of the budget that Oman has you know we've talked we've we've heard about the incredible facilities at Al Amarat we've heard people harp on about just the state-of-the-art situation of of the Al Amarat ground and and Muscat in general and yeah to not have the the tournament streamed in front of thousands of people across you know YouTube or any other platform that they decide to use it is a little bit baffling and it suggests to me that the priorities aren't exactly in order. To move on, boys, before getting too angry about streams and a lack of coverage, a series that we were actually able to catch up on due to television rights was a series in the West Indies between Ireland and the West Indies, of course, hosting. Uh, It was a strange series for for Ireland given that they had a half chance, or they had more than a half chance to level the series one all in the second ODI. They missed out on a couple of run-out opportunities in the dying embers of that game. It was a brilliant match, in fairness, and we've talked about it at length in our respective group chats, boys. But for the Irish, it was a case of one that got away. And ultimately, they, they fell to a 3-0 series defeat, Tim. If they got that victory in, in Game 2, it might have been a, a more interesting Game 3. Yeah, I was um, certainly glued to the screen watching that Game 2. And to see Hayden Walsh Jr., I guess it's bittersweet for emerging cricket fans to see yes. someone that uh, whose game it had uh, improved to a level that he gets picked up by the West Indies and is no longer available for for the USA but uh, what I did like and I did see a couple of tweets pop up about it was how informed Ian Bishop was in the commentary talking about Walsh Jr's partnership during World Cricket League Division 2 in Namibia you know those matches were this day but that's someone who's done his research because nobody else was pulling up those stats or talking about Hayden Walsh Jr playing for the USA in Namibia in a and I think that those games were streamed but um, going back and looking 
looking at that. So that was really good to see from an island point of view, disappointing. They really got into, well, something that was almost not unlosable, but a situation that you'd be wanting to win most times out of uh, anything. And then to see a couple of fumbles at the back end of the game and a run out that probably should have gone um, with the decision that was made with the ball that was dropped onto the stump at the hand following through and not sure what was the force that was actually knocking the bales off. It was quite an interesting decision. But yeah, I think there's just that sort of wobbles in the, the middle order. And apart from Balburn, scoring runs in that uh, in that last game it just makes you wonder what is coming through for Ireland in the batting to replace the likes of the O'Briens, Porterfields and whatnot as, as they drop off the perch. So Balburnie is there and, and, and really impressive, but um, who else is there to support him? Sterling made runs at the top in that ill-fated second ODI, but yeah, when, when he doesn't fire, their top order does look quite brittle. I like Delaney up the top. I, I think he's an exciting prospect, but he's he's really not there yet. And yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's funny, isn't it? They've all of a sudden got a good crop of bowlers coming through, but their batting just looks a bit thin. And they were actually taking wickets, you know. They, they, I mean, they couldn't get Evan Lewis out. He just dominated them. But the other games, the, the rest of the West Indies top order really struggled against Ireland. And basically, they were a couple of wickets. You know, if they'd managed to get Evan Lewis out early, I think they, they would have at least picked up one win, even if they had fumbled that second game. And it's not as, you know, a 3-0 scoreline looks bad, but they had their moments. It's, it's just this thing of they were sloppy. And when you're trying to, you know, pick off a, a higher-ranked team, you can't afford to be sloppy with, with opportunities that come up. The consolation for them is that for any full member it's been really difficult to win away from home no matter who you are and the West Indies definitely aren't in a bad patch at the moment. There's a lot of talent coming through their teams. You know, there there was a time last year when uh, the West Indies, sorry it might have been the year before actually where they had the West Indies B in the Canadian Global T20 there was about 21 players playing in the Canadian Global T20 who were West Indian and then they had a West Indies A side touring uh, somewhere and then the West Indies national team were playing so it's not as if the West Indies are short of talent but yeah going back to the Irish point of that top order yeah I think the bowling's fine and someone made a good point I think it was Justin Smythe on Twitter a few days ago when we were talking about that run out and that last over that Adair bowled that was that the winning runs were hit off and Sheldon Cottrell came at the end he suggested that a fully fit Adair might have been a better option there but to be honest that was an interesting move to give Adair the 50th over of that second one day international I think Balburnie as captain is, is learning the ropes now and I think he had a pretty fine series both with the batty made runs uh, in one of the games and then captaining as well but you know it is a baptism of fire international cricket and and captaining at at this level and it was just the half chance that the island needed to capitalize on to to really blow this series wide open as for that run out decision you know i had no issues with the umpire giving that not out i think i kind of came to the same conclusion as you tim where both the ball and the hand hit the stumps but i think it's the force of the hand that breaks the stumps and you know you have to give the benefit of the doubt there to the batsman you know i think that's where that cliche comes into being but the one example I want to bring up is that first one day international where the top four went like this Sterling 15 off 21 caught Pollard bowled Joseph and then Gareth Delaney 19 off 39 Balburnie 16 off 13 and Porterfield 15 off 31 now they've all done the hard work there they've all sort of got themselves in they all hit boundaries and they all probably felt some level of comfort out in the middle and then they weren't able to just tick over into that second gear of their innings and that was that was ultimately crucial in the series you know if you don't make the most of those opportunities then you know any team worth their weight in salt will beat you especially at home yeah and three of those four nicking off to the keeper as well which is you know once you're set that's just indicates i don't know maybe not laziness or just discipline it's just well, something the missing is isn't too, there is, like the, the white ball didn't look to be swinging a terrible lot so it wasn't you know in the air if, i can't remember ex- 
exactly in that match if there was anything happening off the deck at all. But yeah, it does raise a few questions about, you know, the, the transitional period that Ireland are going through, especially with, with bat in hand. Joseph is a quality bowler and, and he ended up getting man of the match for, for that performance in, in that game. But it's really, you know, it's you almost want them to either go big or, or, or fail. You know, you just four guys in a row getting a start and then and then throwing it away is, is just not good enough. Well, we're talking about uh, Namibia before, weren't we, about them relying too heavily on their fast scorers. It's, you know, I think it just goes to show 50 over cricket, despite it being limited overs, there's still a real importance there of occupying the crease and, of course, keeping the score ticking over, but just how important those partnerships are. And you can't just try and keep pushing, try and keep pushing and losing wickets because momentum loss uh, is so crucial for teams to get the upper hand. We saw that with Ireland. It's funny that we don't talk about Paul, well, I, I sort of think of Paul Sterling as being an older player, just going back on my comment before and the fact he's, he's still only 29 years old he played his first ODI in 2008 he's been around that long and he could potentially still have another 10 years left really you just look at him with the sort of the the beard and whatnot and he sort of the way he kind of wanders around he, he kind of carries himself like a much more senior player age-wise so but um yeah it's so similar isn't it these emerging teams I guess you could talk about Namibia as being an emerging ODI team but it's sort of Ireland against these countries is, is how you really craft an innings and as you described there with the, the numbers on the score sheet you know they need to do better there in constructing that top order to to mean that they've got wickets in the hutch to to go after the bowling later in the the innings rather than trying to salvage and actually bat out the overs yeah it's a good point you you raised there and and it was a good hit out for them in general i think they got out of this tour what they wanted to from a one-day international perspective there's still some 2020s to play and i, I fancy them perhaps jagging at least one of those games but you know with the super league coming up and just preparing uh and and learning how to to play on a tour like this especially for the younger guys coming through and yeah it'll be time for for Sterling to to step up with the bat and also from a team perspective as well just making uh, Malahide a bit of a fortress for that Super League you know they've got an advantage in that they've got rather unique conditions in that competition Um, I suppose a lot of English pitches will be similar to to what they have at Malahide but if they can make that a fortress and jag a few wins there and finish you know higher than say 11th and finish maybe maybe 10th or even higher by you know some stretch of good fortune or just some outstanding play, I think I think they're capable. Uh, it's just a case of, of who steps up, particularly uh, with the bat. I think at this point, just to finish up, I, I still think Balburnie carries a lot of weight there, and, and it'll be interesting to see how he transforms as not only a player with a lot of responsibility on his shoulders with the bat, but now leading the team and in the field as well. Yeah, it's always an interesting situation, isn't it, when you have the the ex skipper sort of hanging around in the dressing room, and but I, I think eventually he'll he'll get the hang of it, and you know having a guy like Porterfield to mentor him in in the role uh, I can only see it going well for him we'll be keeping a keen eye on the Irish as they go through their uh, ODI Super League campaign and of course there's that T20 series to come as well which we'll look at next week Uh, moving on some more bilateral cricket that has gone on over uh, the New Year period the Philippines uh, women took on Indonesia in an enthralling series there a few records fell though which uh, the ICC failed to mention Nikki made a, a decent point of that and you kept up with this uh, a little bit better than we did. But for Indonesia, a few records broken and overall a, a good hit out for them and, and a series victory. Yeah, tough time for the Filipino ladies. They only scored three um, three individual scores in double figures, which was disappointing for them. And, you know, they got bowled out very cheaply in, in all of their games. But yeah, it shows the progress of Indonesia. And, you know, we talk a lot about teams that have good, you know, potential for growth in, in the game. And uh, Indonesia is comprehensively thrashing them as this is uh, really shows how far the women's program has come because that's a focus for them which is interesting in itself the way that 
they're kind of um, breaking through some gender roles in in Indonesia and, and making cricket a accessible sport to everyone. And so yeah, good to see Yulia Angreni scoring their first T20 international century, and um, she performed well at the East Asia Pacific qualifiers as well back a few months ago. And a world record partnership of 257 for Indonesia uh, in T20 international cricket, which was great. But yes, it shows that the the Filipinas have a long way to go. I think a lot of these girls were playing for the first time together. Um, they brought in some of the the Hong Kong Divas, which is a, an interesting story that we talked about in a previous episode. But yes, basically the Philippines have a lot to work on, but Indonesia are a good prospect and hopefully we see more of these bilaterals. Keep them coming. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how Indonesia go in the next set of EAP qualifiers, actually, to see them up against the likes of, of PNG and Samoa. Because as you said, they just seem to be getting better and better and there's a real focus on it. You know, we have mentioned before that they've got very lofty dreams at Indonesian cricket, both on the men's and women's side, but it's good to see the success. And uh, yes, it is against an inexperienced side, but the fact that they are holding these matches is a good sign to see them investing in the sport and uh, long may it continue in terms of growth of Indonesia with over 60,000 people playing the game there um, and things looking up. Yeah, and just being a, a close neighbour to Australia, it's another one of those, you know, a bit like PNG that I think Cricket Australia could do a lot to astutely invest in cricket there and, and help them along. Um, and especially with a lot of tourism from Australia going to Indonesia and some recent trade agreements going on between the two governments. It's a very close relationship between the two countries. So again, it would be good if um, Australia could help them develop their cricket. Getting geopolitical again there, Nicholas, just good to see. But for me, Indonesia, there's a few parallels, I think, with the Nigerian men in that you know people power is so big you know the indonesian population is is huge and mixed with that we've seen you know the emergence of more female talent coming through some of these emerging nations and you know we'll talk about it with with brazil a little bit later on but also thailand is is an excellent example where the women in these countries seem to move along a little bit quicker in the in the progress of international cricket but yeah i'm excited to see uh how indonesia progress and and they've got the wood over their filipina rivals uh, but to talk about Nigeria, and this is a good segue to lead into the Under-19 World Cup coming up with Nigeria playing. We see the emergence of Japan playing as well, qualifying for this tournament for the first time. It's a very exciting time for associate members because, you know, this tournament has been a chance for many of these countries to strut their stuff at, at youth level and to test themselves against some full member opposition. For teams like Japan and Nigeria coming up on the 17th, they're playing the Under-19 World Cup in South Africa. And Tim, just how great is it to see a couple of new countries around on the world stage and hopefully a few names that we might see more of in in the coming years? Well, yes, we talk about this a lot of the potential of Olympic cricket, of getting the sport into countries that uh, hadn't been in the world stage before. But we're sort of seeing, I wouldn't say a mini Olympics here, but because of the ICC's regional qualification, I guess. But at the moment, the under-19s are still a regional qualification system that probably means that you don't end up with the best five teams but you end up with the best team from each region and that's probably resulted I think it's fair to say in what we've got here you know Nigeria had a blinder of a qualifier beating the much more fancied Namibia who has has a very good history in under-19s cricket but to see them beat Namibia in that was great to see a a few of the young players playing in the the T20 World Cup qualifiers Okpe and Runsaway amongst a few others well well, I guess they won't be too nervous coming out on the global stage because they've already done it and then Japan well, you know, we've talked about this at length about how great this is and how the Japanese get behind their sporting teams. Uh, Marcus Thurgate and others in the side that have been training here in, in Australia. I think we can all agree that uh, they're going to struggle in their group and then we might even see some records
record scores against them, but that's not what is about. Uh, it's all about growing the sport and getting these countries on the global stage. And it's just too bad that we're only going to get a chance to maybe see one game of each of these countries um, with the way that the, the global broadcast is set up for the Under-19 World Cup um, with only, I think it's only one or two TV grounds, sort of very similar to an associate qualifier, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is a bit of a shame, but I guess it's probably not very profitable to be broadcasting Under-19s games, which is really disappointing because I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but you can watch you know, Under-15s women's basketball European regional qualifiers without any problem on, on YouTube, and that's a you know a well-filmed broadcast. But, you know, somehow the ICC doesn't have the money to film these sorts of things. Just looking at Japan, yeah, I agree. Uh, they will almost certainly um, lose every game, if we're being honest. Uh, I watched them uh, in some of the prep games against various club sides in Brisbane earlier this year, and, yeah, they're going to struggle. It's a massive step up in quality to international level from where they are and where they have been. But as you say, that's not what it's about. It's a windfall for Japan in that, and Tim, it's a point that you bring up a lot, is that it helps in terms of funding going forward for countries like Japan when they are trying to develop cricket. I'm sure that it's something that will galvanize the board in Japan and likewise uh, Nigeria. But looking at a team like UAE as well, they actually beat New Zealand in a practice match leading up to the tournament. So there are definitely opportunities for some teams to provide upsets. Uh, Namibia beat South Africa in this tournament. I think it was the tournament before the last one, which caused a huge upset. Yeah, 2016. And it shows that at this underage level that the difference in quality and practice and development is a little bit smaller. It's only when you move into the senior ranks where the discrepancy occurs. And Nick, you were able to check out Japan in their preparations for the tournament and managed to get dressing room access. Great stuff. Uh, But now let's hear from Naotsune Miyagi of the Japan Cricket Association. So I'm here for Emerging Cricket with Naotsume Miyagi from uh, Japan Cricket Association. G'day. So you're here with the under-19s as you're prepping for the Cricket World Cup coming up. Talk to us a bit about the prep going on. Um, you know, what, what have you had back home and, and what have you got going on now? So we had a few teams um, touring to Japan. We had a Sri Lankan uh, team coming down in the autumn, summertime, and we had a couple games down there. We had a special coach for weekend and weekdays um, trainings. So we had a, a pretty good preparation towards this tour and towards was the South Africa World Cup. And your domestic season finished um, a little bit earlier. So what's been, I guess, filling the gap between then and now? So yeah, the um, season pretty much ended around October. Um, so it was in the beginning of the autumn and it's, uh, we had a few training sessions. Um, we couldn't get all the groups together. So we went to the, each regions where they lived and we had a small group training sessions and um, that happened in October, November, into the beginning of December. So now you're here in Australia, you've got some uh, some club sides you're playing against. How would you say the standard compares uh, to domestic cricket back home in Japan? Um, yeah, um, I think the domestic cricket over here is um, the higher level than um, we expected probably. They play more turf cricket and they have more regular um, competitive um, level. And I think we were very surprised in how uh, high level they were playing against in the um, challenges that they are facing at um, that's as a good standard and you mentioned turf pitches um, what are some of the technical aspects of the game that you're working on by playing in Australia on in these conditions technically we'll need to get better in playing turf and playing uh, 50 over games um, we play a lot of uh, t20 games and the junior cricket is more based on 
T20s index kind of stuff. So playing in a longer format um, is a tactical or a challenge that they have. But they have been um, preparing for that. Um, the, the tools from Sri Lanka, we played all 50, 50 over games and the trainings are all based on the preparations for the World Cup. So they're starting to get um, uh, that kind of training done. The upcoming World Cup, um, it's going to be the highest level cricket that Japan's ever played in, um, which is uh, a big step up in quality. How daunting is it, for example, to face India uh, and New Zealand, you know, approaching these teams? What plans do you have in place to, to address that? Yeah, it'll be a big challenge, um, no, no doubt about that. Um, but I think they will have the equipments and they have the trainings to be prepared for this. It'll be very challenging, but I think it's most likely that they're going to try their best and um, figure out how much, how, what kind of level they are at the moment. And we can't really say much until we face them, but I think because they haven't really been facing that fast balls before. So I don't think they're kind of scared because they haven't faced it yet. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think they'll they have a good idea after the first match. And yeah, I think um, from then on, I think they'll have a uh, more detailed plan and more an idea of how they're going to um, face the fast balls and that kind of stuff. So what, I guess, have you been doing uh, to, to prepare for the, the step up in fast bowling? I've noticed just watching the game here that the Aussie bowlers are, are noticeably faster than your guys. So I guess, how, how are you guys trying to address that uh, particular issue? Um, for the trainings that we had in Japan, we had um, lots of uh, bowling machine um, practice. We had it um, uh, fast ball and we had uh sidearm um stuff to prepare for the fast balls and i think they will get a few um short balls as well so they've been um, preparing for the short balls in the nets and with i think this is going to be japan's first ever televised game so what does that mean for, for the team and for the cricket scene back home yeah it'll be a great opportunity to show on japan has a cricket team and um, it'll be a good promotion for japan cricket it is the first time that we're going to have a televised um, cricket for Japan and that would um, hopefully create more interest to um, the other uh, countries and we, we find quite a lot of players um, now that they know about Japan cricket and they start to um, contact us so hopefully that will create that kind of interest. So I guess talking about the future, speaking to a few people around the team, I've been told that this is step one in a two-step sort of plan where you've got a very young side and you're planning to go a bit harder next year and this is almost like a development attempt. Um, so how are you trying to launch into the next cycle as well, like using this experience at the World Cup? Well, definitely we have, we have the best side um, for Japan create for um, preparing for the World Cup and we have quite young team as well we've got a couple of 16 year olds and 17 year olds and hopefully that um, they have the knowledge um, and the experience to prepare for the next World Cup and them um, taking part in the World Cup will help the local or create or our other teammates that they play against in Japan will have more um, more knowledge by um, their teammates playing the World Cup. So hopefully that develops more understanding and more uh, level that increases the local teams. And um, you spoke about the way that the local scene, especially for the juniors, is, is T20 cricket. 
We're a year into Universal T20 status and the ICC's pathways are moving very heavily towards 2020. How is that affecting the local game and how does that fit in with under-19s cricket, which still is played at the World Cup in the 50-over format? Um, For Japan, it doesn't really affect us as in um, we try to um, promote T20 because it's cricket is quite hard to promote in Japan with, if it's too long, if it um, has its uh, um, slow kind of aspect to it. Um, so um, to be played in Japan and to be promoted in Japan, I think the T20 format is really working for us. And I think if Japan developed into a more creative nation, they will have more understanding and ha- will have more enjoyment towards the longer formats so it's making the players bat uh, more aggressively and making the um, players execute their skills in a uh, quick kind of time frame Um, and it's um, it's good for the players to learn the skills and then if they're going to play a longer format they need to obviously be more patient and be and sending the more tactical stuff, but I think it's for the current and Japan career is pretty good. And looking at the side, there's a lot more, I guess, diversity in in the team, and then then perhaps Japanese teams have in the past. And I guess Japanese society is um, th- there's not very many uh, minorities, and and so how does that fit in with the team in in terms of the different uh, groups sort of integrating into into a coherent unit? Yeah, we have uh, um, players' um, backgrounds, uh, Indians and uh, British and Australians and Japanese, of course. Um, But they have lived there, their parents are Japanese. Uh, Those kind of background players will play against each other quite a long time now. Um, They have played probably under 15 leagues and under uh, 19 leagues within uh, Japan and they will know each other and they they may play in the same teams. and we have this uh, national academy, which um, have all of them um, taking part into developing them into the national team members. So it's, it doesn't really matter um, what kind of background they are. They they play enough cricket and they have understanding of each other. So it's, it's pretty a good um, team that we have at the moment. And looking a bit to the uh, senior national team, uh, I noticed Kendall Fleming's on board as an assistant coach here. How, how much are you exploring the possibility of him or, or guys like him who you know, have Japanese parents but might be living in Australia, you know, bringing those guys on board to the national side to, to bring some experience into the team? Yeah, definitely it's uh, very crucial that we have um, players that um, at a level that he plays. He has a good understanding of Australian cricket cricket not just um, the playing side but the cultural side and and that's kind of a important thing when you play against um, a stronger team you have understanding of the playing style and their um, culture it helps when you prepare for a stronger team so he brings a, a really good value to the um, uh, the team and that affects how they how the players prepare Natsune Miyagi thank you very much for your time thank you
Just running through the emerging teams in the competition, Japan are in Group A. They take on India, New Zealand and Sri Lanka. Uh, For Nigeria, they have Australia, England and the West Indies, which is almost equally difficult. The Zimbabweans will take on Bangladesh, Pakistan and Scotland, of course. Scotland, who have been actually red hot in some of their qualifying leading up to this tournament. There's a few young players in that Scottish team to definitely keep an eye out on. Tom McIntosh scored runs for fun, scored at least 200s in that tournament, possibly a third. And Angus Guy was another the bat for them that impressed and Tim you'll be happy to know that two leading bowlers for them at the qualifier were two left arm orthodox spinners Charlie Pete and Jamie Cairns so look if left arm orthodox is the cheat code that we all talk about you never know there might be a few scalps there but for group D Afghanistan and UAE and Canada make up that group along with South Africa so there's definitely opportunity there for one of those teams to go through and perhaps make a run at the tournament it's funny you mentioned the results in the past, Bez, when we've seen associates do well. And don't forget when Afghanistan made the semi-final uh, in the last Under-19s World Cup, they were still an associate then as well when Majib um, was spinning a web around um, so many opposition batters. But it, it gets me thinking about this a question about regional qualifiers. And I, the good thing about this is that we have, we've got five associates, but sort of on the flip side, you think, well, do we have the best showing of the associate world with the qualifiers from regions? or if you expanded the, the tournament to maybe a, a four groups of five and then had a global qualifier beforehand, you could actually, you know, by ensuring you've got the best associate teams, you could have actually a really close tournament rather than the potential these blowouts from um, regional qualifiers from arguably weaker regions. Anyway, I'm just, just thinking out loud there as, as we go of a way of really showcasing young young talent around the world because, you know, the, the key is probably here to have the, the best cricket on show from the emerging world, which will get people more interested about it rather than seeing teams being beaten at that level but I don't know it's just what do you guys think about that structure do you like the way it is at the moment with regional qualification or do you think it's something that should be looked at I mean I think they could make it a lot more meritocratic if more of the full members had to qualify but you know that's another another issue but I think the regional qualification is very good because it, it does provide these lower ranked teams with something to aim for you know all the teams in the East Asia Pacific even if they maybe wouldn't qualify through a global qualifier now they have something to something to aim for and something to work towards as as a group and and I think that's really valuable for growing the game I definitely think it's better than a lot of the senior tournaments. So from that level, I would give it ticks. But to look at alternatives, at this point in time, I'm struggling to think of anything viably that is a better option at this point. Um, but at this point, I, I quite like the idea of having a 16-team tournament with regional-based qualification because it gives incentive for young players coming through to compete at the next level and then ultimately strive for, for qualification in, in senior competitions. The problem only stems from a senior competition perspective where there is no avenue for them to go down. Yeah, and I mean, looking at the regional qualification from other sports, like the, the football structure is interesting in that the stronger regions get more uh, slots in, in the tournament. So you could potentially go down that path with, with something along the lines with a few more slots for the Asia region because they have so many strong teams and maybe just one slot from, from for example, East Asia Pacific and you could balance it that way. But yeah, as, as I said, I, I like the, the regional qualification because it, it does give them something to aim for. 
Yeah, and I, I thinking about it also means that each region's countries are more likely to keep investing in their under nineteen programs, knowing that they have a place. You know, especially in the in the Pacific, where the standard at the moment is a little bit less across it. You used to think, well, we really invest in our age programs, we're a really good chance. Well, likewise, on the flip side, you may have countries in Asia shy away from it because there's only one place from a lot of talent. But no, it's an interesting one. And I think with the advent of an under 19s women event as well in the next cycle, it'll be good that we'll be having these conversations about the women's game as well, not just uh, under-19s being a male-only event. Uh, the women's side of things, I, I think, is crucial. And I think from an associate perspective, there would be great opportunities in the under-19s tournament for women to compete. And, and with the addition of it, I, I think is, is a huge ticket. was something that needed to happen a few years ago. And now that it's come in, uh, it's good to see. But yeah, we will see countries perhaps even fast-track their progress even more than we already have seen in associate countries where women have taken the lead and it actually runs into what our next topic is about and it's that Brazil have rolled out a 14-player contract system for their women's teams and Tim, you ran the story a few days ago which was great reading, of course. Make sure to to look at that on our website. They've announced uh, 14 central contracted players for for this year, allowing them to train and play cricket full-time which is almost unprecedented at this level of the game but it shows that it is possible for countries at this associate level to find a, a way of achieving all of this. We do know that the Brazilian cricket history goes back a couple of hundred years, but only now are we seeing it taking off. And, and it's just good to see another associate country from another part of the world flourishing with, with central contracts, Tim. Absolutely. And this all comes on the back of work started by Matt Featherston. Look, he's not the only person doing it, but it was is his involvement or when he started getting involved with the game in Brazil. He's originally from Kent. It's quite weird. You sort of degrees of separation. I played over as an overseas player in Kent in the early 2000s. And when I met Matt at my first I CC meeting, we, we had all these friends in common from the similar area in uh, in the UK. So it's a, it's a small world. Once you play cricket, I don't think you're very far away from people that know people. But he went there to, I think on a, on a cricketing holiday, fell in love. I'm not sure what happened first, moving to Brazil or meeting a Brazilian, but ended up with him moving to Brazil and getting involved. And they had this great program that started in the some of the struggling and vulnerable areas of Posta de Carlos, working with the young at-risk kids. And it was all about youth and empowerment and they have this great system where the leaders within the groups um, wear the special black shirts and as you move through the program to a leadership position you get given and presented these black shirts that they hold value within the community and not only these kids learning cricket and getting better and then coming through into the national teams including the men and women coming from the juniors but it's also keeping these kids out of other pursuits with a lot of organized crime around that um, they're playing cricket and going through university and and quite a few of them being put through university to become teachers to come back and, and run the courses. So this is spread to other cities. And it's I think the only issue they have is having enough people around to manage these programs and not taking too many people in at once to make sure that everybody's getting the attention they need. So to see it now flourishing to the point where they can have contracts for the women's national team, bearing in mind that they don't have contracts for the men's team. So maybe beyond Thailand, they might be the only country that has contracts for their women's national team and, and and not men's. You know, the cynic in you says, well, you know, it's Brazil, wouldn't be a lot of money for them to do that. Then you say, well, okay, well, that be that as it may, there must be so many other countries in similar situations that could be using their money and engaging with local sponsors as the Brazilian Cricket Association has done to create professional cricketers out of this. And isn't it just a, an amazing story? 
Yeah, it's really interesting to see Brazil going down this path. And as you say, Tim, the development program is one of the really good positive stories of cricket making a wonderful difference. And the work that they do with the you know the underprivileged kids and that whole program is fantastic. But looking at it from a I guess a development perspective, it's it's pretty shrewd to be offering contracts to the women because the ceiling for associates to go with women is is a lot lower than it is for the men. So in terms of how far they can go with contracts, I think Brazil will get a lot better a lot more quickly and and this is the thing with the women's game it, it, it's still in development so there's a lot of opportunities for you know a canny board to really stake their claim as we've seen with thailand making it to a world cup it's, it's interesting that i can see women's cricket growing and, and becoming a sport in its own right and you know you look at the commonwealth games where that only has women's cricket and uh, a few countries around the world are really pushing the women's game precisely because it's a it's an untapped market and they're really looking to get ahead of the game with that so hopefully more associates will be doing this it's you think about how, you know, the, the Brazilian women's football team are good, but they are sort of in the shadow of, of the men's team, which is, you know, a, an obsession in Brazil. So it, it's almost a way to, you know, cricket is has a point of difference and it's able to forge its own identity. You know, you look at somewhere like Australia with, you know, the men's team has so much uh, cultural history and it, it takes up so much of the mind space. It's all about the men, you know, Bradman, Trumper, Chapels, Lily, you know, this whole history is intertwined with Australian culture. Whereas in Brazil, the cricket scene is, it's basically a clean slate. And so being able to start with the women is quite an interesting and exciting opportunity, I think. Some news to round out the show for this week. First to Nepal and the Everest Premier League has announced that foreign players in the tournament will remain exclusive to the league within the country. On top of this, any foreign player that is played in other domestic leagues in Nepal from 2018 and 2020 will not be eligible for EPL 2020. Make sure to check out our chat with EPL's Amir Akhtar as well. To the European Cricket League and Scotland will have an entrant in this year's tournament with four for Sheer Cricket Club competing in Lamunga this year. Again, stay tuned to Emerging Cricket and the league's news as we find out who will take up the final spots of the new 16-team format. To Uganda, and Steve Ticolo has left his post as men's national team coach. He opted not to renew his deal there after three and a half years in the role. Meanwhile, Uganda's under-19 women are hosting Tanzania in a T20 series this week at the University Oval in Jamborgo. We'll wrap that series next week. Finally, to Malaysia, where the Superwomen League T20 concluded over the New Year period. In a thriller, the Northern Queens chased down a target of 136, scoring the winning runs off the last ball of their match against the Eastern Lioness. To keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket on your various social media platforms and make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. For now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.